Hello there, Rob. Hey, what's up? How you doing, man? I'm doing good, buddy. How are you? I'm pretty good. Another day's over. It's another recording, another uh, and another legend that we're doing. So today it's um the Rock Show episode eighty-seven. And uh, who do you got for us today? We got the great Steve Baders. Okay. Wow. What do you mean another day sober? What the hell's wrong with you? This is I mean, no, another show. day is over. Over, oh, not oh, sober. Over. What, <laughs> what, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute. Did I hear that right? <laughs> so um, this guy is actually a guy from uh, Ohio. Yes. Youngstown, Ohio, originally. And, uh, you know, he, he, he was a madman. He was a rock and roll madman. But dude, well, the, the, you know, guy, you know what's funny? The guy was uh, he was a big fan of Jim Morrison. Jim Morrison, uh, Alice Cooper, okay, um, bands like that. You know, a lot of theatrical type of type of music. Uh, Stiv was a, an amazing guy, um, a great front man. That's how I always think of him. You know. All right. So what you got for? Because he, this guy, movie, film, he he did it all. Yeah, he maybe had a couple of roles in in, in two small movies, um, uh, tape heads and polyester, but that was in the eighties. I mean, he yeah. made his bones. He made his bones in the seventies with the Dead Boys, but it goes back further than that. You ready for me to start? Yeah, let's go. Let's get get uh, give me the information code. This guy's a guy that was all over the place, man, and he hangs out with some of the best of the best. Definitely, definitely. Well, you know, Stiv was his nickname. He was he was born Stephen John Bader, October twenty second, nineteen forty nine. Yep, in the Youngstown, Ohio, called Girard, Ohio. Okay, you know you know what's funny, Ohio is that why the Ohio Rock and Roll fame is there because they got so many stars and stuff. You know, a lot of great bands have come out of Ohio. Okay, I mean, we've covered a lot of them. The, the, you know, the, the Cramps originally. Okay. Uh, God, the, the Pretenders, okay, um, you know bands that uh, later on, like the Raspberries in the seventies, they were from Ohio. So many acts, you know, came out of Ohio. The Akron area, Cleveland area, uh, the Dead Boys got their start there. Uh, Perubu, a lot of great, you know, uh, Cleveland bands in the sixties, garage bands, you know, stuff like that. I mean, it's just that working class culture you know it was a real rock and roll type thing you know it was rock and roll alan freed came out of cleveland yeah i mean started that that's where rock and roll started so uh stephen john bader uh was born in Girard, ohio and it, you know in those days it was a steel town basically yeah. everybody worked worked in the steel business uh he grew up Loving the Three Stooges, okay. He he would become like a as a kid and through his adult life, he was a, he was a practical joker. He did a lot of funny things with people, playing tricks on people and stuff like that. He was raised Catholic and he went to Catholic school, but um, he had a band in the very early seventies. Uh, rock and roll was his passion, so he wanted to start a band, and they were called Mother Goose. And he fronted this band, and they were from the Youngstown area. And they were kind of like very influenced by Alice Cooper at the time. Uh, Alice was, was, was very big in the early 70s, and his stage show was, was amazing. And Mother Goose kind of had some similar 
kind of theatrical stuff going on. And they were very popular in the Youngstown area. Um, at the time, Stiv was also really into Iggy Pop. And him being a front man and Iggy being a front man, he kind of copied a little bit of Iggy's style, made it his own in a way. He would roll around on the floor like he, like Iggy does, okay, jumping off the stage, dancing wildly on the stage. You know, he he, he did all that. Um, eventually, Mother Goose would break up, okay? They only lasted a short time. And Stiv would move to Cleveland. But it was there when he moved to Cleveland that he met a guy named Jimmy Zero, okay, who was a rhythm guitarist. Yeah. A drummer named Johnny Blitz. And a guitar player named Eugene O'Connor. And Eugene O'Connor, we all know, would one day be called Cheetah Chrome. Yep. Okay. Now, Eugene Blitz and Stiv began playing with a band called Rocket from the Tombs. They kind of, Stiv wasn't an official member right away. He kind of was just this guy that hung around a bit and would go on stage and just sing a couple of songs, you know, to give the, uh, to give the regular singer a break, but eventually he officially joined the band, at least for a short time. Um, some songs were written while Stiv was in the band. Uh, you know, Eugene would write with some of the other guys from Rocket from the Tombs, and uh, but it wouldn't last that long. The band would kind of like break up pretty much almost after Stiv got in the band. All right, now Rocket from the Tombs would break up but they would get back together later on through the 70s and the 80s and the 90s uh, with some different lineups. They're, they're a pretty cool band. Uh, they're kind of like the, the, uh, the beginnings of, the, of what would be the Dead Boys. Okay. Okay, that's kind of like it morphed into the Dead Boys, but then Rocket from the Tombs had its own separate existence later on. Now, it was at this time that... Jeff Magnum, bass player, and Jimmy Zero on rhythm guitar would join with Eugene Stiv and Johnny Blitz in 75 and form a band called Frankenstein. Now, Frankenstein would absolutely morph into the Dead Boys in a short time. Yeah, really quick. They were kind of like a middle period for these guys. It was kind of like you had the glam of Mother Goose that Stiv was doing. And then you had punk, which was kind of like right on the cusp. It was right about to happen. And so Frankenstein was kind of like a theatrical band. They had props. They had monsters on stage. There's a, there's a, uh, at one point, Stiv would bring to life like a Frankenstein monster on stage. And the, the monster would wreck everything on the stage. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, and, you know, I mean, it's not like they were playing big places. They were playing small clubs. So seeing something like that was pretty cool. Uh, they, their act was wild, all right, and their sound was kind of like a mix of glam rock and what would become punk, okay? Kind of like that middle period, like the, like the dictators were in. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where it was like rock was getting a little, little bit of a punk edge, but it wasn't quite punk yet. No, but he was like, he was like, he was put together in the genre of like, you know, punk rock, new wave, goth, and power pop. Well, yes, and Stiv would be behind all of that through his career. But at this point, it was pretty much like he was right on the verge of, of punk rock. Punk rock, of course. Yeah. Now, the Ramones had an album out in 76, 
And they were playing in Youngstown, Ohio one night. And Stiv was a fan and immediately kind of latched on to them backstage. The band told him that he had a, they had to play in Cleveland the next night. And Stiv said he would show them how to get there if they followed him down the Ohio Turnpike. Now, Joey Ramone used to tell this story a lot because they became good friends, Stiv and Joey, and, and really the two bands became good friends. Stiv was driving about 70 miles an hour down the Ohio Turnpike with the Ramones in their van behind him, okay? And they were just directing them how to go. And while he's driving, now picture this, while he's driving, he pulls his pants down and he moons them. He <laughs> sticks his ass out the window and he's the one driving. Oh. <laughs> and Joey Ramone always said, like, it was, you know, he thought it was like the sickest thing he ever saw in his life, you know, at that point. So they became good friends. And Frankenstein actually had broken up a little bit before that Ramones gig in Youngstown. Yeah. But, but Stiv like lied to Joey Ramone and said he had a band and Joey said, well, okay. He goes, if you got a band, come to CBGB's and I'll get you a gig. I'll talk to Hilly Crystal and I'll get you like a Tuesday night or something, you know? So one night Stiv got a call from Joey and a meeting was set up and Stiv flew to New York city from the Cleveland Youngstown area and checked out CBGB's. And met Hilly and, you know, basically he just wanted to see if the club was, was cool and what, you know, because they would have to travel back and forth. Yeah. Okay. Now, when when he came back, Jimmy Zero picked him up at the airport and Stiff told him that the club was great and perfect for what they were going to do. But Jimmy was perplexed by the whole thing because Frankenstein had broken up, but, you know, they didn't really have the band. But because of Stiv's confidence in the whole thing and confidence in CBGBs and his ambition, he was on board right away to reform Frankenstein. Wow. But they kind of said to each other, we're going to have a different name. Now, the other guys were told about this and they just were on board right away. So they changed their name at that point to the Dead Boys. And it was based on a lyric in a Rocket from the Tomb song that they used to play called Down in Flames. And they would actually record that song themselves, uh, I believe, on their second album. Okay, with some diff- well, quite well, you know, a couple of different lyrics, but it was basically the same song. Um, they started traveling several times a month between Ohio and New York City. They would play CBs and occasionally Max's Kansas City, but quickly uh, they were being recognized as a legitimate punk band. Punk was breaking. Uh, the Ramones were the first punk band, but, you know, the Ramones had this kind of pop element to them. The Dead Boys didn't have that at all. The Dead Boys was like pure punk rock in the way maybe some of the stuff you saw in the UK, but to me, even better. You know, I, I think the Dead Boys were like the main punk band, really. So they pretty okay. much went from um, this Frankenstein group, right? They became pretty much the um, the Dead Boys. Yeah, I mean, they started writing some songs. Uh, they reworked some Frankenstein, some Rocket from the Tomb songs were, were brought in. Um, you know, they they, they they were, you know, have some covers. They used to do some '60s garage songs, stuff like that. Um, now. 
the Dead Boys themselves were street punks. They they were more than you know probably any of the punk bands at CBGBs. Eugene O'Connor would change his name to Cheetah Chrome at that point. Now he played a slashing lead guitar, especially in those days. If you ever watch anything from uh, on YouTube, there's a there's a live at CBGB show with with the Dead Boys. Yeah, that wasn't that like in a documentary in a film. Well, yeah, in in well, Danny Garcia, who we interviewed a couple yeah. of weeks ago, in his in his documentary, Stiv No Compromises, No Regrets, uh, he you know utilizes some of that footage. But you can watch the whole show; it was it was all filmed, and uh, that's a sick concert, man. There's like a scene where where Stiv like sticks his head in the bass drum, okay, and then there's another scene where he's like chewing on pieces of bologna. And he's like throwing it into the audience and everything. It was like disgusting, you know. And he like would take, you know, bubble gum and stretch it after he was chewing it for a while and, you know, throw it around and shit. You know, he just was insane. Um, sometimes he would even cut himself uh, on stage, either accidentally or on purpose. Uh, he would swing the mic stand around. Okay. He was famous for that. Uh, sticking his head in the bass drum, like I said, he was he was famous for that. Let me ask you a question: Did he get some of that? Do uh, you think Gigi Allen got some of that from him? Absolutely. Sticking the mic, you know, swinging, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know, Gigi was Gigi was in the punk scene too. He was a couple of years later, but not much. Yeah, but he probably stole some from this guy, oh, you know. <laughs> but but no, I mean, they were they were hanging. They would go to CBGBs. Those guys were in New England. They would drive down. Yeah. They, they saw all those shows, probably. They might have been there. They're probably been there. That's what I'm saying. It sounds very like Gigi Allen. Um, this guy throwing the mic and doing all this stuff. Yeah, and... I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't as. I mean, you know, Gigi Allen. Just we know what he did. Oh, he was out of his mind. Out of his mind. Stiv was not as out of his mind, but he, at the time, those kinds of stage antics scared off mainstream rock fans. Yeah. Okay. Critics. Uh, nobody wanted to pay any attention to them at first. But what was happening, too, in the band is this constant back and forth between Ohio and, and New York was, was, was taking its toll. And there was a point where they were, you know, they, they needed a manager. And, they, you know, they didn't have one. They couldn't get one. And Hilly Crystal from CBGB's kind of came to the rescue because he was noticing that whenever the Dead Boys played CBs, the bar, uh, you know, what, what the bar take would be would be through the roof. I wonder okay. why. Well, I, the fans were drinking like crazy. Okay. You know, he brought, and they brought a lot of people down to the club. They, they were packed out when they played. So he actually asked them, you know, do you have a manager, whatever? And, and, and they said, no. And he says, well, would you like me to manage you? Wow. And, yeah. And, and he, and, and, you know, he said he would put his money where, where his mouth is. And he did. Okay. Like right away, he brought them, he bought them equipment. He booked them into Electric Ladyland Studios over on 8th Street uh, to record an album. Um, he backed them totally, promoted them. Okay. Wow. Uh, there was a, a point where Hilly Crystal had bought a little spot on 2nd Avenue and it was called the CBGB's Theater. Didn't last that long, but it was a, it was a spot where he would feature certain bands and the dead boys were always in rotation there uh always playing and um 
you know, at Electric Lady would be where they would record the epic Young Loud and Snotty, which to me is one of the greatest punk albums ever. Yeah. Uh, and he got Genya Ravon as producer. So he really put his money where his mouth was to promote this band. Uh, he saw a lot of potential in, in, in them, you know, and by him managing them and the, and the, and the club backing them up, you know, he thought he could make something big out of them. Um, during the sessions for recording the album, Hilly Crystal asked the band one night, he said, uh, what do you guys need to be the dead boys? What do you need to, you know, do what you do? Yeah. So they answered, uh, lots of beer and lots of whiskey. <laughs> so, so, so he had a you know he had a bar okay he had a club so what what happened is whenever they were recording at electric ladyland there would be a constant caravan every three or four hours down to the down to the you know from from the bowery up to 8th street near 6th avenue okay to you know bring them booze okay and at the time they were doing a lot of speed as well okay so there was a lot going on there but they recorded 11 songs on this album. Uh, the first one you got to mention is the classic Sonic Reducer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it was actually a reworking of an old Rocket from the Tomb song of the same name. It had a couple of lyric changes that Stiv did. Um, the music was actually credited to Cheetah Chrome and Dave Thomas from Rocket from the Tombs. So it's, it's kind of like a hybrid Dead Boys Rocket from the Tomb song. Now, to me, Sonic Reducer is a punk classic up there with like Blitzkrieg Bop or Anarchy in the UK. It's like a gnarly, psychotic song, a total sonic blast that goes on for three minutes and five seconds. You know? Yeah, it's and like crazy. It's like, oh. It, yeah, yeah, you know? And just it has those like phasey kind of guitars to start out that it just kicks in. And it's just one of the best songs ever written, as far as I'm concerned. I always, um, I always think that um, that this guy was very like. Imagine this guy and like the hanging out with the Ramon and just that culture that he lived in. He must have fucking got some really good shit, man. You know that? Yeah, yeah. Like think, I mean, think about this guy from Ohio. He was probably doing drugs when he, at a very young age. Well, yeah. I mean, he he was a wild guy, and you know. If you, if you ever want to read a good book, you could read Cheetah Chrome's book that he wrote back in 2010 about his life. Yeah. And uh, he talks about growing up in, in, in the project in Cleveland. Right. So, you know, they had they had a, you know, Stiv grew up in a motorhome. Wow. Okay. So he didn't have a lot of money. And, and you know, Cheetah didn't. The other guys, they came from a real working class background. Uh, in Cleveland, and you know, Billy the Artist will talk about this sometimes. He'll he'll talk about Cleveland how it's it was all rock and roll, you know, in the seventies. It was very heavy rock and roll. So, you know, that's the background. And yeah, I mean, you know, getting wasted and shit all comes with that, right? Yeah. You know, now um, this song "Sonic Reducer" is what drove the sales of the album, and it actually got to number one eighty nine in the top 200 on Billboard, which is, in 77, was not a bad effort for a U.S. punk band. No. Okay, that was not too bad. They were getting a little bit of uh, little bit of press. They were getting a little bit of notoriety when they would play CDs or Maxes or 
other little places around the tri-state area, they, they packed them out. All right. Because they were known as this like really wild fucking act, you know, you know, what was that, the weird, you know, what's the weird thing about them? Like, you know what? Like the Ramon had a lot of short one minute song. These guys had their songs were a little longer. They were a little bit longer. They didn't uh so Sonic Reduction was like three minutes and five seconds, you know? Well, that's yeah, Sonic Reducer was a three minute song, which was like a standard yeah. length. The Ramones were like, you know, the Ramones had songs that were a minute and a half. Yeah, a minute and a half, okay. which were you know, but that you know that you could hear the Ramones in the Dead Boys. Yeah. Okay, you know, they definitely were influenced by them. I mean, the Ramones have been playing around for about two years before they even had an album. Okay, so you know they they actually had to you know Stiv knew of them, so they were definitely an influence. Okay, um, and I know I know Cheetah was into them. Okay, Cheetah Cheetah was a big Ramones fan. I think before he had even met them, you know. Um, but to me, like it's a perfect album, Young Lad and Snotty. Okay. The, the fucking name is even great. Young, loud, and snotty. All right. And, you know, you got songs like All This and More. Yeah. Caught, caught with the meat in your mouth. What is love? Uh, what uh, love right. is? I, what love is? I need lunch. Hey, little girl was uh, recorded okay. actually at CV Live. Yes. Yes. I'll talk about that in a second. I, I actually, I, I misspoke before when I said Down in Flames was on the second album. It is on that first Young Latin Snotty. That's yeah, it was. It was, it, and it was yeah. also a short song. It was two minutes and um, yeah, two minutes and that's, from that's fifteen one, seconds. That's the one where they got their name from. You know, like it starts out they're going dead boys, yeah, dead boys. Like you know, it's it's part of the lyrics. Um, every song on that album is great. Now, the only criticism some people that I've heard over the years give the album is the inclusion of that live track of "Hey Little Girl." Okay. That was uh, a cover of a band called The Syndicate of Sound. And it was like a 60s garage one-hit wonder. Wow. All right? But I, I feel that any criticism, criticism of that is kind of unfair because I think it showed their balls to do a song like that, which is, has kind of like pop overtones to it. But I don't know. I, I, I think it kind of was like a sign of things to come. Stiv was really into that stuff more than probably Cheetah because Cheetah is on record saying that's the only thing he doesn't like about Young Loud and Snotty is that they included that. Okay. But I don't, I, I mean, Stiv loved like 60s garage music. He would start doing his own stuff like that later on. Okay. So, you know, I mean, I think it's cool that it's on there. It's like a nice little kind of break between the madness of the rest of the album. Yeah. <laughs> you got, you got this song that was like a top 10 garage poppy kind of sixties song. And they, you know, they, they give it an edge. It's not like, you know, it's not uh, like a, it's not like a pussy song in the middle of heavy songs. You know, it's, it's, it's a good, they, they, they definitely amp it up. Um, the band would tour excessively in that year, 1977. And they actually went to the UK. All right. Hilly was getting them gigs. OK. And he got them a gig with the Damned on tour in the UK. Now, it, you got to mention that prior to them going to uh, to see the to play with the Damned, the Damned had actually come to CBGB's. 
they were. The, I don't know if you remember from our damn show that we did a few months ago, but uh, they had. They were the first British punk band to play in America, and they played CBGBs, and the Dead Boys played with them at CBs. So there was that connection with the and, Dam and the Dead Boys, right? Yes, yes. And uh, when they went to England, they would they would do a few gigs with them, and. <laughs> During that tour, you know, getting back to like Stiv's practical joke shit, the band actually went to visit Stonehenge one day. <laughs> okay, on a day off. Yeah. So you picture these fucking, you know, Lower East Side punk rockers going to Stonehenge. And uh, Cheetah tells the story where they were walking around and looking at stuff. And then all of a sudden, like, you, you know, he's looking around. He's like, where'd Stiv go? Right. And Stiv, like, came he like emerged behind one of the big stones and he was pulling his zipper up he had pissed all over one of the big stones oh, oh my god <laughs> now i'd like to, i'd like to say that i you know i could tell a story that i pissed on stonehenge i'd like to do that <laughs> mike let me ask you a question what um in um september 8 2017, they had the 40th anniversary re-release of the album. Did they do anything different to the album, or they kept it the same? Well, um, they re-recorded it. All right, Stiv is no longer with us. Uh, this was a Cheetah Chrome project that he had wanted to do for a couple of years. Um, I'll be honest with you, I kind of checked it out. I didn't. Uh, they were playing around. I I, I didn't really want to go. Because to me, it, it was you know, Cheetah's great. I've actually met him a couple of times. He's a nice guy. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I just didn't want to see the Dead Boys without Stiv. And then, like, they actually went and re-recorded the album, which I, I didn't understand that. I could see if you want to get the band back together and with a different singer and record a new album. That I understand. Yeah. But I just didn't get what he was doing. And I, I'm not knocking him. I mean, Cheetah's great, but it just didn't interest me that much, you know? And it, it was the 40th anniversary, so they just kind of, like, re-recorded the album. So who, who, who was doing the singing? Was it Cheetah? No, no, no. They had a guy. I, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Uh, but he, he, was, he looked a little bit like Stiv. Yeah. Uh, Why wouldn't you know? they just use Stiv's vocal and just put new music? Ah, who knows? They might not. They maybe they didn't have the rights. So I uh, know they would have the rights. It's their band. I it's guess. their I, band. That's what I'm saying. I mean, yeah. they say you just put the vocal on Steve. Maybe you change it a little bit, and um, you could have easily done it, especially in 2017. Yeah, I guess you could have. I, I, I don't know. You know, uh, I think Cheetah lives down in. Uh, I think he's down in Nashville these days, and. Uh, you know, he does a lot of recording down there. I guess he has his own studio or whatever. I'm not I'm not really sure. That was something that I I kind of only paid attention to maybe 50 percent. You know, I was kind of like, well, it's cool, but it's cool. He's back around. But it just didn't really interest me that much. You know. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in, in 78, Stiv and the band would record their second and last Dead Boys album called We Have Come For Your Children. And right off the bat, they knew that there was going to be problems in these recording sessions. Steyer Records, who they had signed up with for, for, the, for three albums, actually, 
uh, back in 77. Um, they wanted to really break the, the dead boys. They wanted to really get them more mainstream. And they asked them to kind of tone down a little bit their wildness. All right. And then they brought in a producer named Felix Papalardi. All right. Now, Felix Papalardi was in the band Mountain with Leslie West. Yeah. Okay. And he had some experience producing bands. He even produced Cream, the uh, the Disraeli Gears album, I believe. Okay. Uh, but the band wanted to bring back Genya Ravon. All right. She, Genya Ravon is great. She was she was the singer in Goldie and the Gingerbreads, which yeah. was like a girl group in the '60s. And I don't know if you remember uh, the movie The Warriors. Yes. Okay. Do you remember the scene with the Lizzies? The girl, the girl gang, and the guys go into that clubhouse, and then the girls attack them. Oh yeah, that that was right? her. No, well, there, there's a song. There's a song that she had for the soundtrack. Okay. And the scene when like the two girls are dancing together, you, they kind of imply that they're lesbians. Yeah. Okay. That's again your Ravon song. Oh okay? shit. And she had she had quite a few albums. Uh, she was on the soundtrack to the Warriors, but she had quite a few albums. She produced Ronnie Spector's comeback album called Siren, and Cheetah Chrome actually plays on that album. Um, she had a long career. She's now on Little Steven's Underground Garage Station. She oh, does, yeah? Uh, yeah, she has a show, I think, on the weekends. You know, but I, I mean, she's, she's amazing. I have a couple of her albums. She's somebody we should try to interview. I would love to interview her. Maybe um, we could. The way we're getting people now is crazy. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. We're actually getting some people. Um, now, they wanted Genya Ravon, but but Saya said no, okay? Then they wanted to try to get James Williamson from the Stooges, but Saya said no. They were, they were stuck with Felix Papalardi. Yeah. They felt, that, they felt that there was no way this guy was going to understand them, okay? He was just like a, you know kind of like a hippie okay and like you know long mustache that kind of look in the early 70s you know he still looked like that in 78 you know <laughs> now, now you know what happened to felix Papalardi? what happened did you ever hear the story no what happened to him in, in the early 80s he got shot to death by his ex-wife wow they lived on the upper east side and she blew him away over some argument it was a it was a Derringer pistol that he had given her, and she turned it on him. She just killed him. She killed him in cold blood. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Now that was about maybe five years after this album. Yeah. But um, because it's funny because Felix he 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 was doing background voice for I, I won't look back. Yeah, I think he I think he threw in some vocals of his own. Uh, on that, um, they went down to Miami to record this album, and it was a problem, okay, because Cheetah had really developed a bad heroin habit by this point, okay, and going down to Florida and leaving New York when you have a heroin habit is not a good idea. Uh, you can't score anything down there, all right. So you know he was not feeling good, and he, they didn't. They weren't. They were, you know. You know, whatever like the sound that they had achieved on that first album, Young, Loud, and Snotty, 
they weren't getting it on this album because Papalardi was turning down the guitars. Wow. And, you know, Jimmy Zero was complaining too, okay? Like, you know, I can't hear the guitars on, on what we're doing. And it just seemed, according to Zero, he says, you know, the more they complained about it, the more it seemed like Papalardi would turn them down. Now, I'll be honest with you. My opinion is I like this album. We have come for your children. There's some great songs on there. Yeah, right? they get that. Like you got a um, big city, and then you got tell me. Yeah, the stone song. Stunt. That's what the, the, the stone song. That's yeah. And you know, um, uh, I won't look back. Son of uh, Sam. Son of Sam is one of my favorite. De- it's in like my top three. Dead boy songs. <laughs> yeah. I so I mean the barking dog at the beginning. Yeah. Great. Okay. Now. I think I probably like this album more than most people that are into punk. I don't know. There's something about it I really like. It's not as good as the first one, but I think it's. I think it stands on its own. You know, I would have rather have seen. To be honest with you, I would have rather have seen Cheetah redo that album instead of the Young Loud and Snotty. You know, that would have been more interesting. I would. I would have perked up and paid attention. Wow. Done, you know. Um, now, Dead and Alive is another good song. Which one? Dead and Alive. Oh, yeah. They don't have a bad song, Rob, in any of their shit. They're both albums. Okay, they're all great. It's just that the the guitars were kind of turned down a little bit on this. It's not as edgy, but it's not like they made a pop record or something. You know, it, it's like still heavy. Okay, but it's just got a little bit of a muddy sound to it. I don't know. To me, it's, it's not a big deal, but the band never liked it. And, and some fans didn't like it, but I, I, I think it's great. You know, um, what do you think of that opening song? Third, third Third generation nation, man. Yeah. That was, that was a song that they would, you know, once that album came out, that was like their opening song. They would start their gigs with that. You know, it was. It, it's a cool song. It is a very cool song. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, um, now not long after this album's release, the Dead Boys would break up. Okay, uh, they were a popular live attraction, but this album didn't chart. All right, so it wasn't translating to any sales. But at the same time, they, even though they were they were they were popular live. They were not happy as a band, but they were starting to get some interest from a lot of heavy hitter managers. Okay, people wanted to manage them. Hilly had kind of pulled out by the second album, and they were kind of like managing themselves. Okay, and at one point, uh, Pink Floyd's managers were interested in managing them. Wow! But it was it was stuff that they they didn't want to deal with that. All right. They just didn't want to deal with like being told what to do and, and all that. So they had actually befriended the Stones, all right, especially Keith Richards. And they went to Keith Richards' birthday party in 1978. And it was there, it was at a roller skating rink, okay? And it was there that Cheetah uh, broke his arm. He fell down roller skating and broke his arm. And Richards gave cheetah a ride in his limo to the hospital wow okay now i'm sure that was a great ride right yeah (laughs) okay 
Richards was still doing dope in '78. I'm oh, sure, you know, he got I'm him sure lumped up. Went that <laughs> he got him lumped up, probably. Probably did. Yep, he probably did. But now, that actually wasn't the band's first scrape with disaster because earlier in '78, drummer Johnny Blitz was in a brawl at the Second Avenue Deli on East Fifth Street. Okay. <laughs> He got into a he got into a fight in the middle of the night with uh, I think there was some Puerto Ricans from like Avenue D or something like that, and they stabbed him seventeen times in the chest. Wow. Okay, now he almost died. He almost bled to death, but he he was saved in the hospital, and he, you know he didn't have a lot of money, so they they at CB's they did a benefit for him, and it was a famous benefit because. The Dead Boys had attracted some, you know, like I said, managers were, were interested in them. They were hanging out with the Stones. They were hanging out with, like, Susan Sarandon and people like that a little bit. And John Belushi, at his at his height in 78, okay, was was a big fan. And Belushi used to go down to CBs all the time and see, and see the bands. He would, after Saturday Night Live, he would go down to CBGBs and hang out. And if the Dead Boys were playing, he was definitely that because he was he was really into them. But um, since since Blitz couldn't play because he was you know stabbed, um, at this benefit for him, he actually performed with the Dead Boys. Okay, and it was like a couple of days long this this uh, this benefit. So a few times the Dead Boys played, and you know Belushi played one night. Jerry Nolan from the Dolls played another night. And my buddy Rick Rivets had told me uh, his band, the Corpse Grinders, played one night and they shared a, dress- a dressing room with John Belushi. Wow. Was yeah. he doing the um, the whole Blues Brothers thing where he was doing those things? I think that was right before that. I I don't think he he was doing that. When did the Blues Brothers come out? Is that seventy nine? Yeah, I think so. You know what? Yeah. I'll, I'll give you an exact date right now. Give me a second. Yeah, because um, I, I think I I think he was like on the cusp of doing that. He was still doing, you know, Saturday Night Live skits. Yeah, but the Blues Brothers weren't down Saturday Night Live. They did start on Saturday Night Live, so he might have had already done it. I'm not sure. You looking it up? Yeah, I'm looking it up right now. Um, so the these Jacob and Dan Aykroyd uh, release date. So the album that they released was actually in nineteen in June of twenty nineteen eighty. Nineteen eighty. Yeah, I mean, I think I think they started doing it on Saturday Night Live, maybe around seventy nine, and then the movie came out right after that. All right, so, so here not- it is. So um, the Bruce Brothers, American Bruce and Soul Revisited, founded in 1978. Okay, maybe. maybe. By comedians Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi as part of a musical skit on Saturday Night Live. Belushi and Aykroyd formed the band in character, respected as lead vocalists, and so on and so on. They even performed yeah. Hey Bartender and Later Soul Man. So nineteen, yeah. they were they were the music they debuted as musical guests in nineteen seventy eight. So it, it might have all been at the same time. Yeah, it might have been around the same time or very close. Let know? me see if they say anything if they play with it at the CBB uh, CB uh, CBGVs. Okay. They actually play with some with some people, man. Holy shit! 
Yeah, no, the Blues Brothers was a big deal. Yeah, I'm I'm reading this and it's like wow, they they actually play with some really um and that movie still holds up, man. Yeah, that movie's fun. great. Yeah. I didn't like I didn't care for the sequel with on um, John no. Goodman. No, I didn't like it. I was I like, but the original was was great. Yeah, you need Belushi in there, otherwise Yeah. Yeah, but it's it nothing. But I wonder maybe they, I wonder if that was they were doing that back then or maybe he was just doing something else. Maybe he's just doing hardcore rock and roll then. Well, I, you know, this is what he was doing in his off time. Okay? Yeah. If you, you know, with Saturday Night Live, he had his skits. He had the Blues Brothers. He had the Bees, right? The Samurai Chef, all that fucking shit. Uh, but uh, I don't think he did Blues Brothers at CBGBs. I doubt it. Yeah, nah. You know, now getting back to this is, you know, Stiv knew about Cheetah's bad drug problem. Okay. And it was really starting to be a problem. All right. And in late 78, they were approached by, uh, you know, it's never been named, but a, a supposed like heavy hitting management company. All right. And they basically said, we'll manage you and we'll make you big if Cheetah gets off the dope. Because you're not going to get anywhere with Cheetah being on dope. It's just going to be a problem. So, you know, the Dead Boys wanted to continue. Okay, but Stiv and Jimmy Zero was there when it happened. He called him up. He called up Cheetah. And he said, listen, we have a chance to be with so-and-so management. We could break big, but you got to make a decision. It's either the dead boys or heroin. Wow. All right. And, and Cheetah said, fuck you. And that was the end of the band. All right. I mean, he, 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 you know, you couldn't really continue on without Cheetah as the Dead Boys. Okay. Now they would continue on. Stiv would take the band and they would kind of have uh, some revolving members in them. Okay. But it was called Stiv Baders and the Dead Boys. Yeah. All right. Now, uh, Jimmy Zero played with them for a little bit. There were some different members. Um, they actually decided to move out to the West Coast and settle in Los Angeles. Okay. Now, the sound of this new Dead Boys band was different. They had gone like less punk rock and more like 60s garage band sounding. A little more like power pop. All right. And that music would all be... It was the stuff that he would write, Stiv would write, would be from you know recorded on his first album, Disconnected. All right, but that the the the, the beginnings of those songs were in this version of the Dead Boys called Stiv Baders and the Dead Boys. So he got contacted. Uh, he actually contacted an old friend of his named Frank Sesich. Frank Sesich was a, a Youngstown, Ohio guy. Uh, he was a musician and he was in a band called Blue Ash. And they were like, uh, trying to think what they, they kind of sounded like the raspberries a little bit. Okay. Um, they were like a, a heavier Beatle influenced kind of band. Okay. A little bit heavier than the Beatles, but, but definitely influenced. Now they, he called up Frank Sessage and they started writing some songs together. Now, they recorded some demos also in 1979. Um, 
Cynthia Ross of the Toronto punk band, the B girls was Steve's longtime girlfriend. Okay. Uh, Cynthia Ross, sometimes you'll see her over at Otto's. She's still around. Okay. Um, but she was in this band called the B girls. She's in a band now called New York junk. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard of them. They've, they've been playing around the last few years. Now the B girls were signed to bump records in Los Angeles. So her and, and Stiv went down there with the demos. And Greg Shaw, who was the uh, founder of Bomp, heard the demos and liked them. All right. He's like, this is great shit. So he offered a contract to Stiv in the spring of 79. And they, Baders and bass player Frank Sasich, okay, he was using a, an alias. He was using the name Jeff Jones. Not quite sure why. He might have still been under contract with another label or something. I'm not sure. But they assembled a band that included guitarist Eddie Best and drummer Rick Bremer. The first Stiv Bader's solo single released for Bomp was a cover of the 60s garage band The Choir and their song It's Cold Outside. All right. I actually have that single. And uh, it's it was backed with a self-written tune called The Last Year. And that was released in May of 79. Very cool cover on the, on the, on the 45. They look kind of like 60s garage. They had like white shirts with vests and like that kind of look, like the Stones, you know, back in the 60s. So let me ask you a question. The Dead Boys are done, right? And Steve Bader is, um, what, was the prob- the- what was the problem he was having with the new record company? What is it, uh, Bomb Records? He didn't really have a problem with them. They they offered him a contract, okay? But I think that the, the material that they were basing that contract on wasn't anything like the Dead Boys. No. Okay, it was that it was, you know, he was doing a a very like 60s influenced garage sound, okay? And that was kind of like, you know, definitely not what the Dead Boys were. The the Stiv Baders and the Dead Boys band was was pretty much dead at that point they they were they were playing around they they would do like some dead boy songs but then they would also do this like some covers and like this 60s garage sound that they had now so it, it kind of morphed into something else you know what i'm saying rob yeah i don't understand so yeah because they just uh, i was thinking that for some reason they had i thought they had like a rocky relationship because he wasn't doing as good no, I mean it it I think that when people went to see them they expected the Cheetah Chrome kind of dead boys and they weren't right? getting that and they weren't getting that. So I think some people were turned off by that. But Steve didn't give a shit. He was doing what he wanted to do. He yeah. had gotten sick of punk rock at that point, okay? He was sick of the 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 whole scene. He thought everybody he didn't like the way they looked. He didn't he just didn't it, it turned him off. He was bored by it. So he, he wanted to do this like earlier sound that something he always liked. Cause even in bands like mother goose and even Frankenstein, they would do sixties garage stuff. I mean, even on young lad and snotty, Hey little girl, that's a sixties garage song. Okay. So that's, that was always there in Stiv's life. Okay. But he got tired of the punk rock thing and he wanted to go in this direction. You know what I'm saying? Yep. So 
A few months after that first single of It's Cold Outside, they had a follow-up single called Not That Way Anymore, and the B-side was called Circumstantial Evidence. Um, they had a new drummer at that point, a guy named David Quinton, who was formerly of the jam-influenced punk band called The Mods. And then they had a guy named George uh, Gabinus, okay, on guitar. He was the guy who had replaced Cheetah Chrome originally, okay? Uh, George Gabinus, when, when, when Chrome broke his arm and couldn't play, Gabinus was actually filling in for him. And then when the band broke up, like, he kind of continued on, okay? Uh, George Gabinus just passed away, uh, I think, a few months ago of cancer. Um, both singles were produced by Steve Bates and Sesich, and they were calling themselves the Gutter Twins. And it was a play on Mick Jagger and Keith Richards being the Glimmer Twins. <laughs> and they were now ready to record an album, okay? Uh, Bomp was going to let them do an album. Most of the basic tracks for this new album would, come, uh, would become the album Disconnected. Uh, they actually recorded this album on a basketball court next door to the bomb studios. <laughs> the, court, the, court, the court had a wooden floor. Okay? Mm. It wasn't an outside court. I think it was an inside court. And they just liked the sound of it. And it had like a great sound to record live on. Okay. And that's what they were looking for with that album. So the recording sessions were all nighters. They, they lasted about two weeks all night long. They would record and sleep during the day. But uh, they were very upbeat, very positive. Uh, it was a, quite a different recording experience than the last one Stiv had with the second Dead Boys album. Um, the album was co-produced by Stiv and producer Tom Wilson. Tom Wilson was a guy who'd worked with the Dead Kennedys, the Adolescents, the Vandals, and Social Distortion. So he had a good pedigree of of punk. Okay. Um, all band members contribute in some way to disconnected. They all uh, wrote something. Stiv had co-wrote three tracks and one standout track on the album is a song called evil boy. And it was co-written by Sesich and Jimmy zero. Even though zero was not involved in this band, he had co-wrote that song with Frank Sesich. Now, uh, also on this album, they covered the Electric Prune song, Too Much to Dream. And that was a 1966 hit single for the Electric Prunes. Um, Disconnected was released by Bomp in December of 1980. Now, when this album came out, Stiv immediately did a three-week tour of the Northeastern United States. Wow. Okay. And he actually had brought in Brian James from The Damned to play guitar because George Gavinis left. Okay. So after they recorded it with George Gavinis, he didn't tour. They brought in Brian James. All right. Now, the live shows were a combination of some Dead Boy stuff and the Stibbs solo material from Disconnected. And it was very positively received. Um you know, for some reason, when he started to just call himself Stiff Baders, which is what he did at that point, it was more well-received, even though he was kind of doing the same thing before that album, but it was called Stiff Baders and the Dead Boys. Interesting kind of 
distinction right there. Yeah, so he, so what he did, he released a bunch of singles, and then he he released the, he released the two singles, and then they made the album. The album, yeah. They were all titled under the name Stiff Baders, and then once he went out on that short tour, it was just Stiff Baders. It wasn't called the Dead Boys. All right, so it was he would he would do he would do some Dead Boys songs because he had to, okay. But you know, it would be mostly songs from Disconnected, and it, I mean that's a great album. It, it, I listen to that album at least once a month. I love that album. Okay, uh, I don't know is Molly having on the juke. I don't know. It might be there because she got a bunch of music there. There's a lot of stuff. I, I, I know I've heard Stib stuff in the bar. It might be on her playlist. If not on the juke, yeah, because they definitely uh, got that. The they definitely got that um compilation album that got songs from everywhere. Yeah, might be on one of those. I know I've heard um, "Evil Boy," I think, and "Circumstantial Evidence." I've heard that in the bar. Um, now, just as Disconnected was starting to hit the store shelves, Stiff connected with the remnants of the British punk band Sham Sixty Nine. Their singer, Jimmy Percy, had just left to start a solo career. But Sham 69 wanted to continue to work without him, but they couldn't, for contractual reasons, use the name. All right? So that band wanted to put something together, but they needed a singer. So Stiv lent his voice to this new band now called The Wanderers that he put together. And it was named after the movie. The yeah. The Wall movie, okay? I'm the and- Wanderer, I wonder, wonder, wonder. Right, 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 right. That's a great movie with the Fordham Baldies and all that. Yeah. Stuff, you know? But um, basically, The Wanderers is just guys from Sham 69 and Stiff. Okay? Yeah, pretty much. Um, they just formed the group together. Right, right. Now, they would record this one-off album in December 1980. Uh, it wouldn't get released until May of 81. But the record was called Only Lovers Left Alive. Now, it was a concept album about an ex-CIA agent named Peter Beater, <laughs> okay? And he allegedly provided <laughs> secret information on tapes to this teenage kid who wants to fight the system, but he eventually, like, succumbs to the system, okay? Wow. And it was based on, like, Stiv was into, like, conspiracy theory stuff. Okay, he would have gotten along very well with us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, he, he, he was getting, um, for years, he was getting tapes from a guy named Dr. I think his name was Dr. Beater or something like that. Okay. And the guy said it was a mail order thing. And he said that he was uh, an ex CIA agent. Holy and shit. Then these tapes would be sent to Stiv. I mean, I think the guy sent it to a lot of people. It was like a business, okay? And it was like stuff about like the Kennedy assassination and like, you know, poison being in the food and like all kinds of weird shit that back then nobody talked about that stuff, you know? Um, But Stiv was interested in this stuff and they kind of used some of that stuff they had from the tapes to come up with this concept on the album. Now, the album got somewhat positive or mixed reviews when it came out. There was a single release called Ready to Snap that came out a few months before the album. Yeah, Ready and to Snap. They, yeah, and they also covered a version of Bob Dylan's Times They Are a Changing, 
that was released as a single as well. They did play a few gigs in the UK as the Wanderers, including a show at the Lyceum yeah. in London. Um, but the Wanderers project was becoming a problem for Stiv's disconnected band, okay, that he had from the disconnected album. All right. He thought that he could kind of juggle both of these bands at the same time, but it, it didn't work out because the disconnected band. They didn't want to have that. They, they didn't want his, their, you know, their singer just going off every couple of weeks and playing with another band. Okay, so they broke up. All right. Now, the Wanderers actually ended up playing in the States. They did a short tour in the U.S. Um, it was at that point, uh, it didn't last long. They would, they would basically break up. Okay. Yeah, they only um, lasted like maybe a year. Like a year. You know something though, I I have that album, okay. Only lovers left alive, and um, it was something. It, it, I had been looking for this album for years, and it was very rare, very hard to find. It wasn't that many copies of it, and I scored a copy off eBay maybe about ten years ago, and uh, it's a good album. It is. It's kind of like lost in the history of Stiv stuff. Okay, it's kind of forgotten, but it's 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 a great fucking album, and uh, it you know it didn't sell, didn't really do well, and it was just kind of like this super group of punks. Okay, but it just you know it was it only lasted about a year. So after they broke up, uh, Brian James, who was playing guitar for Stiv, um, and Stiv got together with the guys from the Wanderers. Okay, uh, the ex-champ 69 bass player Dave Traguna, who was in the Wanderers, and they got together with Rat Scabies from the Damned. Yeah. Okay, on drums, and they decided to start this kind of one-off thing called the Dead Damned Sham Band. Okay, and they had a set list of Dead Boys songs, Damned songs, because Brian James had been in the Damned too. Okay. And Sham 69 songs, as well as a few, like, covers that they would do. So, Mike, this so, is the group that led to the Lords of the New Church, right? Yes. This is the beginnings of the Lords of the New Church. So this, okay? is what's like, this is almost like a Temple of the Dog kind of, kind of group, a super group. Yeah, that's a, good, uh, that's a good analogy. It was kind of like a punk rock super group. Yeah, and that's what okay. pretty much was like. And they got together and, man, what they, they, they stayed for a little while. Well, they played one gig. Yeah. Okay. Only one gig at the in Hammersmith Clarendon in, in London. Okay. Now it went. It was very popular. The, the the gig was went very well. But Rat Scabies couldn't commit to this band because he was still in the Damned. Yep. All right. So after one show, they ended up getting ex Barracudas drummer Nicky Turner. Okay. The Barracudas were kind of like a. Uh, you know, in the early 80s, and it was, you know, Stiv started this. He was part of this. I went, maybe he didn't really start it, but he was part of it. Uh, this kind of like garage rock revival. You had hit what he was doing with the disconnected stuff, okay? Then you had bands like the Chesterfield Kings that started around that time. And then you had the Fuzz Tones. You had the Barracudas. They were another band. And, and, this was like a late 70s, early 80s garage rock revival. Um, 
and they were kind of in the middle of that. Now, the, the Barracudas drummer, Nicky Turner, joined up, okay? And, but they started calling themselves the Thick. Okay? And they played one gig. Uh, their first gig was in Paris in late 81 as The Things. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Now, Miles Copeland, remember that name? Yeah. Right. He was Stuart Copeland's brother from the police, right? He had started IRS records. Uh, in America, it was called IRS. In, in, in England, it was called Illegal Records, okay? Um, he got interested in what they were doing, okay? Um, and he offered them a contract, okay? They were calling themselves The Things, but they were open to, to change, to change the name, yeah. Yeah, that, that didn't have to stay that way. So one night they were kind of brainstorming for a, a solid band name. And Copeland thought of the title, The Lord, the Lords of Discipline. OK, and that was the name of a movie that was being planned at the time. It ended up coming out in 1983 uh, and Sting from the police, who Miles Copeland was like personally managing just sting yeah okay he had been offered a role in this film wow uh he he i don't think he's in it he didn't take it but copeland thought oh that might be a cool name for a band but then the band was like well we don't want to have the name of a movie that's going to be coming out you know it doesn't sound right so they threw some other words around and they ended up with lords of the new church all right they got that name so copeland would manage them and, and he would give them a, a contract. Uh, they would record their self-titled album, Lords of the New Church. Uh, it came out in July of 1982. Um, the band produced it themselves. And it was a mix of like punk, glam, garage rock, and then this new genre called goth. All right. And, you know, they, um, they had added a keyboard player, a guy named Matt Irving. Okay. Um, he would join them on tour and he would record with them as well. But the goth thing is interesting with Lords of the New Church. They they had a goth image, but the the sound really wasn't that goth. Okay. Uh, they had this goth image that seemed like, you know, they could go that way. They wore a lot of black. They wore eyeliner. They had like leather clothes, PVC, rubber kind of clothes, things like that they would wear. Okay, now the album when it came out was pretty well received. It, it, it peaked at number three on the UK indie charts. Wow! And, and the single "Open Your Eyes" got to number seven on the UK indie charts as well. Uh, the single would actually make "Open Your Eyes" would get to number twenty-seven on the US rock charts and number thirty-four on the Canadian charts. Two other singles, a uh, song called New Church and Russian Roulette, did well in the UK indie charts. And there was a video for Open Your Eyes and for Russian Roulette that was getting heavy rotation on MTV. Do you remember those songs? I remember the New Church and the Russian Roulette. Yeah, I remember they were, they were like being played. Like there were videos that there were that, that many videos. So these videos would get played over and over again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this was, this was like, you know, 82. Okay, so MTV had been around almost a year and uh, they were playing anything. And I think they didn't have commercials in the first year on MTV, too. No, they had um, some commercial. 
Very limited. Very limited. Beginning. Like they'll play like four or five songs, and then they will have like a commercial. That's pretty much what it was. Or, yeah. or they will have. Uh, they will go to the VJ, and then they'll have like a commercial, and then they go. But it was very limited commercial. Yeah, very limited. But um, this album had a kind of a theme to it. I uh, I wouldn't call it a concept album, but it, the album was a little political. It was kind of like talking about personal freedom. Uh, there was some kind of like apocalyptic themes. There was even a song called Apocalyptico, something like that. Um, and it had a lot of like religious imagery on the album. Open Your Eyes itself had this very prophetic lyric that I think it's still kind of relevant today. And it starts out, video games trains the, train the kids for war, army chic in high fashion stores. Okay. So that's kind of like, you know, I, I think Stiv was, he had his finger on something that, you know, was becoming a problem in society, whether it was video games or teaching kids how to be violent and stuff like that. That would be a concern, you know, through the eighties and, and later on. Right. Yeah. Think, think about those lyrics now, how close they are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of what we're living through, you know, um, there was also a track called Little Boys Play With Dolls. And that was a, a tribute to the band, the New York Dolls. Now, they would tour extensively behind this album. Um, they did a show one night at my father's place in Roslyn. Yeah. In October of 82. And that album uh, would come out. It would come out as a live album in 2018 on a re-release of the first album. It included this live set from my father's place. I've heard it. I wish I was at this show. I, I knew of this band. I was young. I was about 13, 14. I knew of them, but I didn't see them until a couple of years later. But in September of 83, uh, the Lord's second album was called There's Nothing Sacred. That would come out. And the sound would be a little more experimental, kind of like adding horns and, and a greater emphasis on bass. The band would self-produce again, except for one track. They did a cover of um, the grassroots song, Live For Today. And that was the first single off the album. They, they let Todd Rundgren produce that. Okay, Todd Rundgren is a famous rock star, and he also produced the first New York Dolls album. Um, the second single was called Dance With Me. And that was... They almost had a hit with that, okay? It was getting heavy rotation on MTV. It was rising slowly in the charts. And then somehow it got yanked off MTV because the video, mistakenly, it, it, it really doesn't, but mistakenly people thought it was like promoting some kind of pedophilia. Yeah, how fucking crazy is that? I mean, I've seen that video a hundred times and I never really got that out of it. There's a scene where like Stiv is playing with dolls and stuff. I, I, don't, I don't know. It's supposed to be voodoo dolls. Okay, so I, I don't know. So they were Coppola. He, he was, run, he was um, running IRS records, right? Miles Copeland, yeah. Yeah. You know, but had, had that not happened with Dance With Me, they might have broke big with that song. It was it was that it was that good, you know, but it just got yanked and then, you know, radio didn't want to play it and it just got a bad rep. Yeah. But so they continued touring extensively, um, but Stiv was starting to wear down. 
Okay. He was like getting like disenchanted with a lot of things. He, he, you know, I think he, he, he used to suffer from depression. I think, okay. I don't know if he was ever officially diagnosed with it. He never talked about it, but I, I, he would be like, he'd have days where he would be happy and then he'd have days where he'd be down. Okay. And he was a lot down. I think after that happened with dance with me. So they went back in the studio and they recorded their third album called the method to our madness. That's a pretty good album too. That's a great, that's a great album. All three of their albums are good. Now that would come out in November, 1984 kind of be a, a, a new direction would be brought in. Um, they, 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 they brought an outside producer named, uh, Chris Sang, Sang, I can't pronounce his name, Sangarides. Okay. And he had like a, a more of a, a hard rock history of producing. He produced Thin Lizzy and Gary Moore. Okay. So that was a little bit of a different background for producing than they had before. Uh, they were self-producing actually. So it was the first time they ever used anybody else. But the album has a sound almost more hard rocking. It sounds almost like uh, they were trying to do a, a debut album. They were coming out very hard. Uh, some people have described this album as a mix of like the Stooges' Raw Power and Billy Idol's Rebel Yell. Yeah, because it was All a right. very hardcore fucking album. It was a heavy album, but it also had keyboards on it. And, you know, it was kind of like what Billy Idol was doing a little bit. You know, okay? I think I would consider this album almost like almost like a new wave kind of album. Well, they were lumped in with that. You know, they, because they, of the keyboard and all that stuff, the sound, but it was definitely a heavy sound, but they had those keyboards and stuff, which made it very sound very different. Yeah, yeah, it gave it like a little more of a new wave edge. Yeah, now, that's what it kind of felt, like a new wave. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Now, the three singles that were released was a song called M-Style, which stood for Murder Style. Yep. Uh, the song Method to My Madness, the, the, the title track. And then there was a sort of a ballad called When the Blood Runs Cold. Now, Mark Taylor would be brought in as a new keyboard player replacing Matt Irving. And there was a video for Method to My Madness that got into decent rotation on MTV. Yeah. Uh, this album would only peak at number 158 on Billboard. That's as far as it Yeah, got. it never went any further than that. No, nah, no, nah, it never did. Now, in early 85, Miles Copeland approached the band with the idea of them covering Madonna's Like a Virgin. Yeah. We... <laughs> right? And they released it as a single in May, and it was kind of a hit. It got some radio airplay. It got to number two on the UK indie charts. It's a funny song. I mean, he sings it funny, and he's like, <laughs> I don't know if it, it, it's got like keyboards in it and stuff. It sounds almost like the real one, okay? But he's singing it, you know, with that stiff voice. It's fantastic. And, but, yeah, there's like there's like parts of the song where he like burps and everything. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so, two songs were recorded for a follow up single that never materialized. Um, a song called "The Lord's Prayer" and a version of. Uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival's Hey Tonight. Now, both of those were produced by Stephen Van Zandt, but would eventually appear on their next record, which was like a greatest hits compilation called Killer Lords. Yeah. Now, things would start to unravel here. Dave Traguna had begun to be very dissatisfied with the band management. 
he accused Miles Copeland of just kind of exploiting them and ripping them off. Uh, he would leave the band and join up with Andy McCoy from Hanoi Rocks, who had a new band called the Cherry Bombs after Hanoi broke up. Yep, the Cherry okay. Bombs. Right. Now, Traguna's bass playing would be replaced by a guy named Grant Fleming, and they added a second guitarist named Alistair Simons. Okay. Uh, they were also without a record contract. Okay. Uh, but they did contribute two tracks to the IRS label for the soundtrack to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 movie. Which was a terrible movie. <laughs> uh, I, I love that movie. I think it's great. I love it. <laughs> I think it was another cheesy, like, you know, horror film. <laughs> it, it is. I mean, Dennis Hopp is great. I saw that in the movies, and I think it's the first time, I'll never forget, that I saw a movie in the movies, and people walked out of it, and I was the only one left. It was it was bad, man. I remember watching that as a kid, and I was like, "Oh, this is terrible." I enjoyed oh, it later yeah, on because it's like just one of those films, you know. It's just you know, to me, it's just so bad it's good. Yeah, know? that's exactly what it is. So bad it's right, good. Right, right. They, they they contributed two songs: one song called "Good to Be Bad" and then another song called "Mind Warp." Yep. In '87, a German independent label called Perfect Beat released a re-recorded version of their 83 single Dance With Me. They re-recorded it. And it was the last recording with Simons on it who would leave shortly after doing that. Now, an EP called Psycho Sex would come out. It would be released on a French label called Bondage International. Uh, there was also a single on that label released separate from the EP called Real Bad Time. All right. Now... <clears throat> Nick Turner and Grant Fleming both left the band at the end of 87 and they got replaced by Danny Fury and Dave Traguna came back. The, the, um, the cherry bombs didn't last too long. Nah. Right? So, um, for the next year and a half, the Lords would tour England and the rest of Europe consistently. Um, some live albums came out on different labels in around 88, 89. Um, they did a new studio recording of the creation song, Making Time. And that was released as a single in 88 on the Perfect Beat label. They didn't really have a, con they didn't have a record label that was going to give them an album. Okay. They were just putting out some singles. So they were kind of sputtering, you know, they weren't doing that well. Bader's at the time was living in Paris and the band had booked several gigs in the spring of 89. Yeah. But Div refused to do them, saying he hurt his back badly. Uh, he did agree to one gig that he said he would do on May 2nd, 1989, at the London Astoria. But the gigs prior to that, there was about five or six gigs uh, he refused to do. Now, Traguna got upset because he claimed that Stiv was witnessed at a Parisian nightclub partying and he supposedly had a bad back. So the band was starting to doubt that he was telling the truth. Um, Steve and Brian James had a phone conversation and, and James after the conversation told the band that Steve said to go get another singer for those gigs. If you want to do them, he said he didn't mind. Okay. Now, the band was reluctant to do that. Like, how do you, how do you do that? Yeah. How right? do you replace? Yeah. How do you replace Stiff? Even if it's just for a couple of gigs. 
So they, you know, they thought about it. They talked about it. They said, all right, well, maybe we'll put an ad out in, in the music press. So they did that. Okay. And, you know, they thought that maybe they could audition a few people. Maybe there would be a million to one chance that somebody would be good. All right. But everybody that came down, like, really sucked. So they ended up canceling those gigs. All right. Because they realized you just couldn't replace stiff. All right. So and I heard also that those gigs, they were relying on them to pay down some tax bills that they had. Yeah. Okay, so it, it was really kind of fucked up that Stiv didn't want to do him. But who knows? I mean, I don't know if he I really just, hurt his back or not. I just think he probably had it with the group. <clears throat> most most people say that. I think Jimmy Zero is on record saying that because him and, and Stiv had remained friends all that time and they used to talk. Yeah, of even, even though Jimmy Zero was back in Cleveland, yeah. uh, he would speak to him maybe once a month or so, I've heard. And, and and talk with him about what was going on, and he would say he's like pretty much done with the Lords, but he didn't know what to do. Yeah, didn't you he know? also play with Johnny Thunder and Dee Dee Ramon? Well, that's going to be coming up. Okay, uh, we got a great story to tell though. Before that, dude, what's okay? incredible about all those three guys? I mean, had that happened, that would have been an amazing band, but it fell apart. Yeah, but think about all those three guys. Where are they now? <laughs> In heaven, they're dead. In heaven, yeah. Can you believe that? Imagine yeah. that Johnny Thunder, him, and that's like that's like a portion to destruction. That's like drugs. What the fuck, man? Yeah, I mean, it's it's Stiv would die first, and Johnny would die a year later. Yeah. Okay, but and indeed he would die about a decade after that. You know, but. Yeah, had that happened, that would have been an amazing band. But there is a great story here because the the end of the Lords of the New Church is about to happen, okay? Um, when it came time to do that London Astoria gig that Stiv agreed to do, he showed up late. He didn't he missed the sound check and he showed up right before the, the beginning of the show. And he kicked ass. He did an amazing show, okay? And when it came time for the encore, he actually went backstage and he came out wearing a shirt of the advertisement that Lords of the New Church did for trying to get a new singer. (laughs) Yeah. So he was like, it was like the ultimate fuck you. He didn't tell anybody he was going to do that. Okay. The band was just like shocked. There's pictures of him. With the shirt on, it just says like name band looking for for lead singer, you know, blah blah blah. It doesn't say Lords of Nutrients, but it just says a name band. Wow. Yeah, and, and he was pissed. He was pissed off that they went and did this. So, but you know, Brian James had said to the band that they said it was okay. So it's, nobody really knows like how that went down. Like, was Stiff kidding? Or did Brian James just make that up? You know, who, nobody knows, okay? But the band was shocked when he came out wearing this shirt. And it was during the encore, and Stiv went on to thank all the fans and say, you know, this is the last gig we're ever going to do. And he ended the band right there, and that was the end of the Lords of the New Church. Wow. You know? Um, over the following year, 
Stiv would be living with his girlfriend, Caroline, and become a big part of the Parisian rock scene, okay, at the clubs. Uh, he attempted to put together this supergroup, which was going to be called the Whores of Babylon, okay, and it was Johnny Thunders, Dee Dee Ramone, and him, okay, but it, it, it fell apart because Dee Dee and Thunders had a big falling out, all right? Dee Dee got so mad at Johnny Thunders that he took bleach and he poured it all over Johnny Thunders' clothes. Oh, man. <laughs> okay. Now, Thunders, Thunders had just, I think, just come back from somewhere. I mean, he was in the last year of Thunders' life, he was buying a lot of suits. Okay. And so he was wearing these like expensive suits. And Dee Dee just like fucked his world up with all that. And he just, Thunders lost his shit and ran out of there and the whole thing just fell apart. I, I, I don't I don't remember what it was all about exactly. It might have been some kind of drug problem or something. Yeah, they I'm were probably getting sure. fucking lumped up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of lumping going on there. Absolutely. Now, sadly, uh June fifth, nineteen ninety, Stiv was was meeting Caroline on the street at a store she was coming out of, and he got hit by a car. Yeah, and, that's and, crazy. Yeah. Now he got up, you know, and, and he ended up, you know, his girlfriend said, well, you should go to the hospital, went to the hospital, but he was waiting so long for, to be taken care of that he felt he was okay, you know? So he left and he ended up, um, dying in his sleep. And, and the story was he had a traumatic brain injury. Yeah, he probably was bleeding he, from the brain. He probably ble- bleeding from his brain, and he didn't know, okay? And he, pa- and he passed away in his sleep, sadly. Uh, very sad story right there. Um, I, have to, I have to just add a little something to it. Um, the day it was announced that he had died, I was, I was working at a factory in those days. I used to inspect wire. And it's funny because the wire I used to inspect was stuff the phone company used to buy. So years later, I was like working for the phone company and I would see the name of the factory that made the label. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I used to work there. OK, but uh, Stiff passed away and I was actually listening to the song. I never believed it could happen off a of method to my madness when I got the call. Wow. So I'll never forget that. Uh, just, you know listening to something and then finding out the guy just died. You you, you, know? you want to hear something crazy about it. Supposedly his ashes were put on um James Morrison's um coffin, right? I mean uh, his um, well, on his grave. His grave. But supposedly yeah. Yeah. <laughs> have you I heard the rumor you. supposedly his girlfriend sniffed a little bit of him. Well it, it wasn't just the girlfriend. There was a few of the people there. Yeah. Okay. Is, that, is, is that yeah. real? Yes. I see the Danny Garcia documentary that happened. I know, but I still, you really think they did that? Well, you know who else supposedly snorted somebody too is Keith Richards. Yeah. Keith Richards snorted his father. <laughs> Jesus Christ. His father's ass. That's nuts, right? Yeah, that is. That is but, nuts. Yeah. Because he is. was in that movie Polyester, and John Waters said that the girl confessed to him, his girlfriend confessed. Caroline confessed yeah. to him that she sniffed a portion of his ashes. Right, right, right. He had a small part in the movie Polyester. Yeah. He was also uh he was also in the movie Tapeheads. And he was also in the movie for the CBGB movie. 
Well, Stiv wasn't in it. Yeah, but they featured. He was dead, but they but they featured the dead. Boys yeah, they featured that. the dead boys. That's what I'm saying. Which was like, yeah, wow. That's 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 you know uh, that's a movie that it was awful, awful. But that part of it was kind of cool that they even had the dead boys in there. You know, they had the Ramones in there too. You know, but and Blondie, but it just the movie was awful. I wanted to like it so bad, but it was just terrible. But um, yeah. Who yeah, was the guy that placed um Baylor's? Was the uh, guy in Justin Bar or whatever? Something like that. Yeah, he played him okay, but but uh, you know, it kind of dealt with the whole like Hilly and managing the band and trying to make them something. Yeah, and I thought I thought it was it was interesting. I mean, Alan, uh, what's that guy's name? Alan Rickman. Yeah, right. He was a good actor. He he just died a couple of years ago. Oh yeah. Yeah, he passed away. So, um, you know, Caroline did snort a little bit of Stiv's ashes to kind of like be close to him. Okay. <laughs> That's what she said. Now she she would she would pass away, I think, a few years later as well. Um, from natural causes or from overdose? I don't know. I can't say. I'm, I'm I I know. I really don't know. I know that she just died. I'm not sure. Um. Now, one thing we got to thank is uh, is Danny Garcia's documentary. Yeah. Okay, uh, it's called Stiv, No Compromise, No Regrets. Yeah, that's it a came, great documentary. Yeah, it came out in 2019. Uh, if you like what we talked about tonight on this show, check out that documentary. Stiv, No Compromise, No Regrets. It's the only thing filmed, a documentary or anything, about Stiv. Yeah. You know, when he came out with this, and I told Danny this when we interviewed him, I said I was so glad that somebody finally did something on fucking Stiv Baders. Yeah. You know, I mean, he really needed to be done. And uh, I think it's a great documentary. Uh, check it out. And a lot of the stuff we talked about is in there, and there's even there's even more. I actually found a lot of um, bits of the documentary on YouTube. Not the whole movie, but you can find bits and stuff that they put up there, which wasn't bad, which is what I use for some of my notes today. Cool, cool. Yeah, it's out there. You can get it. And there's also a bunch of other stuff there. They got a good, pretty good one-hour documentary on YouTube that you can watch about him, too. Yeah, and and if you're out there, you know, check out the the, the live at CBGB's. I mean, it's just amazing, the, the concert they do. The people going up on stage and, you know, jumping off the stage and all crying. It was just chaos. <laughs> love it. Love it. You know we love chaos. Yeah, it, it was chaos. It was good. <laughs> man, so this guy had quite a history, man. And he died pretty young. He was only 40 years old. Yeah, yeah, he was only 40. Um, you know, uh, it's it's sad. You know, he didn't have to die. He just, you know, made a mistake. Yeah. He should he should have stayed in the hospital. Maybe they could have helped him. They could have found that he was bleeding on the brain. You know who else died like that in a weird accident like that? You remember the guy that used to do all those info inf, inf, infomercials? Uh, Billy May. I think Billy. He was in a supposedly he was in a he was on a airplane that had this bad turbulence. A freaking book bag hit him in the head. A bag hit him in the head. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He went to sleep and he, his brain brain died. It's almost the same way this guy died. You know who had a weird death? The 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 crocodile guy. Crocodile Dundee. Oh, Steve Earl or Crocodile Dundee. Yeah. 
not Crocodile Dundee. No, Crocodile, the Crocodile Hunter. Yeah, Steve Irwin. He died. He died because uh, they put out the freaking um. It was a, it was a horseshoe crab. Yeah, that got him. Right, the 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 thing. Or was it a stingray? Yes, a sting. It was a stingray that stabbed him right in the heart, and then they put right. it out, and he bled to death. And he died, like I guess underwater or something. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, that was weird, man. Well, but Stiv was Stiv was a nice guy. I I met him once at the uh, at the Ritz. He was performing with um, a special night that Joey Ramone had put on with different bands called Circus of the Perverse, and he was in Lords of New Church at the time. He was kind of like maybe about. A year before, six months before they broke up, something like that, about six months before. Wow. And I talked to him for about 20 minutes. Nicest guy. Nicest guy. I was, you know, I was impressed because he was just talking to me like I was, like he knew me. Wow. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, very cool. There was a lot of people there that were pretty approachable back in the days where you like went to CBGB and you saw these guys and you know what? It wasn't a problem. You can easily talk to all these musicians. It wasn't no big thing. Now they're like hiding around, which is crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's everybody's got their own agenda now. You know, I mean, it's all it's different now, man. You know, let's hope one day we can get back to having some clubs again open. Yeah, they, you know? we, we we wait to see what's left after all this shit happens. You know, I I know it's terrible. It's terrible. Like, so. What'd you think? I thought you like Steve a little more now. Yeah, man. Once, uh, you know, I, I there was some stuff I learned today that I had no idea until I was researching him and reading him. But the guy was a very fascinating guy, and those and it's funny. Once you mentioned those videos at MTV, that whole memory came back with those videos. I'm like, oh Jesus Christ, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, because they yeah. were in rotation. You know, when MTV first started, there wasn't that many videos. There was like a handful of videos. So you would like within two hours, you would see the same video over again. Pretty much. They were just repeating whatever it was all day long. And if you if you had a if you had a video, they would play it. They didn't care what it was. Yeah, it got to the point that I remember I would be able to I knew that the, the line was so good. I was able to I had a VCR, I was able to record some of those songs. Yeah, so you knew when they were going to come on. Yeah, right? it was incredible. It was in the same order or whatever. Yeah. It, it was always in the same order. They never changed. They had it. They, maybe yeah. once in a while, like once a week, they will add like another video just to throw it off. But all they did was move it like an hour later or a few minutes later. But it was always right. the same format, which was amazing. Right, right. I mean, the 80s was, you know, MTV ruled the 80s, right? Yes, they did. It, ruled, it, it was crazy how, how crazy that was. Yeah. And they really did. Yeah. Like, you know what? Everybody, every musician, they people that you never knew how they looked were all making videos, which I thought that was crazy. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. So that's what we did. We got the Lords of the New Church and Dead Boys and the story of Stiv. Yeah, that's not the information. This is a 90-minute show so far. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, this is episode 87. We got three more before we reach 90. Wow. Moving right along, man. We're moving right along with the countdown to 100, man. So, I know. We got to fi- we got to figure out what we're going to do for 100. Yeah, cuz um what what's the, the what's um what's going to be 90 um the 90th show. Uh, Richard Hell, Richard Hell. Yeah, Rich, yeah, um no, the, the the Richard Hell is 98. So the oh, Irish Punk is the one is the 90th show. Okay. Irish Irish Pond, Little Finger and the Undertones. 
Okay. Okay. That's the ninetieth. That's the ninetieth show. The ninetieth one show is Marvin Gaye. Wow. Wow. So we'll probably hit the one hundredth show in like in January in this in January, like the middle of January. Yeah. Yeah. We got to do something special. Yeah. Maybe we'll do like a live pop podcast or something for somewhere. You know. Yeah. Yeah. We could like work around it. Like maybe record some other shows for 101 102 103 and then just go back and do 100 live yeah might be fun that wouldn't be bad to do it like on facebook and let the people you know the 100 show because maybe uh, the bars will maybe the bars will be open yeah maybe because we did the you saw me and john with the freak show just reaches 100 show yeah and then, oh. and then we got the conspiracy show that god knows when that gonna reach 100 we're up to 57 already <laughs> yeah well, a lot of shows, man. A lot of shows coming up, and uh, we got a lot of surprises in December. Mike got a whole um, thing for December. It's going to be more interactive than ever. Yeah, what we're going to do is through September, we're going to ask everybody to vote, okay, and, and pick uh, the lineups for the for the four weeks of, uh, of December. Now, by the time you hear this, we should have it all lined up, but I'll start putting that out on Facebook soon. Through September, yes. Because so. this show, um, this show is October twelfth when it comes out. Hopefully, with right, with a get back to normal. Yep, hopefully. All right, Rob. So, where can we find you? Um, you can find me on anything. Getting lumped up. Um, on Twitter, on Instagram, Facebook, and pretty much Patreon. Anything lumped up, you look it up. Google anything. You're gonna find me up. You can also find me on the website. Getting lumped up also. So um, look me up, um, send me an email, whatever, if, and it's very easy. You look it up, you can find anywhere. And uh, Mike, where can we find you? Rob, just got to look on the Getting Lumped Up, and we see your head right there all the time. Yeah, and well, how do we find you, Mike? Okay, I'm on Instagram, RockerMike212. I'm on Facebook under my real name, which is Michael Baker. Also on Facebook, we have the, um, the Rock Show group page. Uh, featuring me and you, okay? Yes. And uh, I post, like, a song of the day, a song of the night, uh, information about bands, and, of course, the podcasts and whatever, okay? Whatever you want. Got, like, about uh, maybe close to 300 people now in the group, so it's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, also, I'm on Twitter, RockerMike3, so look for me there on Twitter. Yeah, you do a lot of stuff. You know what? We were going to have a special guest um Dan Scott, but um, he got, he's still locked up in jail. We don't know when he's coming out. <laughs> locked up in Facebook jail. In Facebook jail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. So like every show, remember, don't get drunk. Drunk. Get, get lumped up. up. See you next week. Take care, people.